from CJSR FM 88.5. My name is Matt Hergy, and this is the CJSR edition. Take a look at the tag on the t-shirt you're wearing right now. Where was it made? If it says on the tag that it was produced in Bangladesh, you might begin to question if it was produced in the infamous Tarzine Fashion Factory. That's the site of the 2012 Dhaka fire that led to the death of 112 workers in a raging fire that engulfed the factory. If you could indeed prove that your t-shirt was produced in that factory where there were no emergency fire exits and where seamstresses worked under horrific conditions, would the guilt weigh on you? Well, then how would you feel if you were potentially responsible for designing that t-shirt, actually had a tactile part in creating the system in which factory workers were forced to work under duress to produce that t-shirt. Would you feel the blood on your hands? When Canadian fashion designer Sunjit Senek heard the news of the 2012 Dhaka fire, he couldn't help but feel implicated in the tragedy, culpable even. As a clothing designer for the Canadian arm of a multinational clothing retailer, Senek's job is to design inexpensive clothes destined to be manufactured by the most competitive manufacturers. The company that pays his salary was a client of the Tarzine Fashion Factory. Yes, it was a huge impact that, that, uh, that there was something that could have been mine. Um, But... I believe that the biggest the the biggest thing that impacted me is it could have been any of us. And because there was because it was illegally subcontracted and we kept hearing that word and that when I was sitting in my office I was thinking to myself, well, how will I know where anything is made? And I can't be sure whether the, what I'm drawing is being made in unbearable conditions. It's the CJSR edition. Edition, 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 On this week's episode of the CJSR edition, CJSR's associate producer Roshni Nair speaks with Canadian fashion designer Sanjit Senek about the problematic state of the global clothing industry, an industry where growing profits butt heads with ethics. Then later in the program, the groundhog saw his shadow last week, signaling six more weeks of winter. Now, we all know that it's been a long winter season across North America, but one University of Alberta Earth and Atmospheric scientist is encouraging us to think about the inherent beauty of winter in Edmonton. But first, have you ever wondered whether we should be optimistic or pessimistic about the future? If you want more reasons to think that things may turn out for the better, Alex Steffen is your man. Alex Steffen is one of the leading voices on sustainability and social innovation. He is an award-winning writer, 
lecturer, and planetary futurist. Stefan doesn't downplay the scope of the scale of the problems that we face today. Instead, he shows that we have the tools within our grasp for meeting those massive challenges. His latest project, Carbon Zero, Imagining Cities That Can Save the Planet, is an exploration of the kinds of design, technological, and policy innovations that could transform our cities into low-carbon engines of prosperity. Last week, Alex Steffen spoke eloquently as part of International Week 2014 at the University of Alberta about the need to rethink our current paradigm of economic growth at all costs in order to ensure a planet that is just and sustainable for generations to come. Prior to his presentation, Stefan joined me in the CJSR studios for an interview. For CJSR FM 88.5, my name is Matt Hergy. I'm joined today in the CJSR studios by one of the leading voices in sustainability, social innovation, and planetary futurism, a field of thought focused on developing strategies for better understanding the large human and natural systems that increasingly impact every aspect of our lives. His third and most recent book, Carbon Zero, Imagining Cities That Save the Planet, is an exploration of the kinds of design, technological, and policy innovations that could transform our cities into low-carbon energies of prosperity. Alex Stephan, thank you very much for coming down to the studios today. My pleasure to be here. Now, I just sort of gave a Coles notes of what planetary futurism is, but I guess when you consider that when you do a quick Google search of planetary futurism, I think it's intimately linked to your name. So maybe could you detail uh, your uh, understanding of planetary futurism? Sure. Um, well, planetary futurism is a thing I made up, basically. Uh, but I made it up for what I hope is a good reason, which is that I had been working first as a journalist and then as a uh, futurist and consultant um, for a very long time, uh, looking at issues of sustainability and innovation and, and the future. And uh, I wanted a way to distinguish what I have been trying to do from what people might think of as futurism, which often has to do with what color your robot might be in the future, right? Um, and uh, what I'm really trying to do is help people understand the ways in which big things around us are changing. Big forces are transforming uh, the landscape. And it's often very difficult to see them in the present mm -hmm. until we look ahead and see what their ramifications will be as they grow larger. And that helps us understand where we are in a more complete and, and hopefully more useful way. That's a sort of a huge mental leap to take for humans to sort of distance themselves from what's happening now to sort of think about their future interests in, in 10, 25 years from now. How do you go about explaining that to people? Well, the first thing that I try to do is to help people see that the kinds of trends that I'm talking about when, when we talk about the future uh, uh, are actually not distant concerns. They're here already. Um, the, my, what I try and do is not sort of predict amazing things that might happen, but in a way, uh, to use a, a buzz phrase, I try and predict the present. Mm. I try and show people how our understanding of what's going on might already be out of date. Mm. Um, and whether you are somebody who has a moral conviction that things should change or not, um, you will want to know about the ways the world is changing in order to make good decisions to 
meet your own self-interest, right? So could you explain to me then, like, I guess, what uh, modes of thinking that we're engaged in currently that are, as you said, out of date? Well, the easiest and largest one has to do with uh, our relationship to the planet itself, uh, especially to the atmosphere and climate. Um, we know unequivocally now that the climate is changing, that we are causing it, and that we uh, can map fairly well uh, the range of likely outcomes from adding X amount more carbon to the atmosphere. And what the world scientists coming together in the largest peer-reviewed process in world history told us just this last year was that we have a budget, we have a limit on how much carbon we can put into the atmosphere before we start to reach potentially runaway effects, effects that are really not just disruptive, but disastrous. And we are not very, uh, we have not very well incorporated the idea of having a hard limit to how much more carbon dioxide we can emit. Uh, we haven't incorporated that idea into our thinking, right? We're still acting as if climate change were a distant problem that, you know, the next generation will have to tackle. Uh, and if we do a little bit today, we're on the right road. But in fact, we need to be completely transforming our thinking into uh, to, towards actually understanding that climate change is a pressing issue that demands action now. In your book, Carbon Zero, you, so in the opening, you paint a sort of glum picture of our uh, climate model sort of being out of date, like you said. And, and then you subsequently went on to talk to a CNN reporter saying that we only have 25 years left to really save the world. What do you hope that we will have done in 25 years to get to that point where the planet is a more sustainable place going forward? Well, the first thing is that we're going to need to have figured out how to dramatically reduce the total carbon emissions that humanity is, is releasing. Um, and that's going to mean pretty dramatic changes in almost everything we do. Um, but also, my sense is that it's impossible to disconnect the sort of environmental and social aspects of this, right? How do we raise billions of more people out of poverty while addressing climate change and preserving natural places um, and promoting democracy and so forth from the business innovation technological side of this? Right? So those are sort of intimately tied. I think they are. And I think they're tied in both directions, that we need businesses to be acting in ways that are promoting those things. We want innovations that will help us meet those needs, et cetera. But also, I think um, smart business people, smart innovators are realizing that the businesses that are going to be huge in the near future are the ones that do those things. And there's already a really dramatic shift in the way corporations, uh, large corporations are thinking about their strategies and really starting to see themselves as companies that need to be providing those services in the very near future, right? Need to be providing mm -hmm. low carbon, high quality uh, life, uh, life choices. And, but there's even more to the point. I, I'm from San Francisco um, where you, you, know, you can't swing a dead tofu without hitting somebody who's got a startup. Um, and... Uh, Many, many of the kinds of people who are interested in launching their own businesses, interested in trying to find cool new solutions, new technologies, et cetera, are already thinking in that light, mm. right? Are already beginning to recognize that the huge opportunities over the next few years are preparing for the kinds of big changes that we're going to need over the next 10 and 20 years. 
So what's frustrating to me as an environmental journalist is a lot of the time I'll, I'll file a story and say like, oh, there's I think we basically have an understanding that what we're doing is causing a lot of harm to the earth. Something needs to be done. And then when it when the news cycle ends, it, the, this conversation just continues. This cycle continues because mm, certain governments just aren't responsive. So. How how do we actually like push forward into a new sort of paradigm? Well, um, as somebody who spent years as an environmental journalist myself, I certainly sympathize. Uh, my sense is that we are not going to make the kinds of changes we need to make uh, by having concerned citizens uh, mildly suggest to elected officials that something ought to be different. Mm. Um, I think something that is not often enough discussed is that these issues are incredibly generational. Um, what we're doing now is essentially a war on young people and even more people who are not yet here. Hmm. Um, we have already in our cultures, both in, in the U.S. and in Canada, a very strong sense of the rights of future generations that's implicit in what we do, right? So if I set a bomb to go off in a minute, I'm guilty of a crime. If I set a bomb to go off in a week, I'm guilty of a crime, right? Similarly, most people I think would agree that if I set a bomb to go off in a year, I'm guilty of a crime. Well, we're setting bombs that are going to go off, climate bombs and, and other disruptive bombs that are going to go off a year from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, the massive effects of what we're doing are going to land on the shoulders of people who are young now, right? And I think that if we had a public debate where only people who could expect reasonably to be alive in 2050 were allowed to make plans that impact the year 2050, we would live in a completely transformed culture. Okay. Um, we don't have that debate. Instead, what we have is a debate that's largely dominated by uh, older people and people with large investments in the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't think either of those groups of people are, are evil or wrong, um, but I think that their own sense of self-interest precludes them from making tough choices that we need to make now in order to avoid much tougher choices in the future. And so my sense is that things aren't going to change until people who understand that this is a pressing issue of, of self-interest and, and perhaps even survival, i.e. young people, um, start treating this as the serious, as the kind of serious issue it is. Okay. Um, I think that you know young people ought to be treating this as a crisis in their everyday lives because it is. You know, um, we're already seeing massive effects of climate change, and much bigger than than were predicted uh, just a decade ago. Um, and the effects of climate change, of globalization, of, uh, uh, of innovation, of social instability caused by things like food availability and so forth, the effects of all of these things coming together are going to be massive on the lives of people who are in their teens and 20s now. Um, and if for no other reason than that you want your own life to be better, you should be involved in this stuff, even if you don't, even if you're not an activist, even if you're not somebody who really, who really, frankly, even cares that much about what's happening in the world. You should still want to be addressing these concerns. So one of the transformations that you talk about in our thinking is a transformative paradigm to how we uh, think about a city. 
Can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit more? We've come to understand that cities are incredibly powerful tools. Um, they're tools for doing things differently. Uh, one of the things that cities do that cities have always done is bring people together. And it turns out that the more that you bring people together in compact neighborhoods that are walkable, the more you see certain kinds of benefits, right? Um, generally, uh, the amount of driving somebody does goes down. The amount of stuff they buy goes down. I mean, it's kind of obvious why, right? If you live in a, you know, a, you know, a 40 square meter apartment, you're not going to buy a home gym, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but it's also true that the kinds of activities people engage in change, right? And people tend to, uh, there's a reason why cities drive economic growth, right? Because it's people who have ideas bumping into other people who have ideas, um, people who are in a profession networking with other people in that profession and other professions that really moves things forward, right? That, that leads to the creation of new things. And so when you look at the sort of the efficiency benefits yeah. of urban life, and you add those to the economic benefits of, of urban places, um, I think that you see a precondition set up, uh, a, a, you know, a, a good uh, garden prepared in which to grow all sorts of needed innovations. The stereotype of a city is that it's sort of this carbon-spewing life form almost. Why is that not the case? Well, um, Currently, it is the case, uh, but it's just the case that per capita, per person, uh, cities spew much less carbon than, say, suburbs or, or sort of spread out exurban development. Hmm. Um, it also um, is true that many of the kinds of things that you would want to do in order to address environmental issues and climate issues around consumption and so forth are made easier by cities, right? So it's not just that you, um, you know, it's not just that, hey, if you live in an apartment and bike, you obviously have a lower climate footprint than somebody who lives, you know, uh, you know, yeah, th man, 30 miles out, right? Yeah. You know, um, uh, but it's also the case that it is a much easier environment in which to create all sorts of innovation patterns, and one of those is, just to give you an example, one of those is delivery. So I'd be willing to bet that most people do not think of delivery as a particularly like big sustainability intervention. But it actually is. And here's why. It takes a lot less energy for one truck to bring something to, uh, you know, bring objects to 100 different people than 100 different people to go to the objects in their own cars. Right? It's just profoundly less energy. And as we have started to um, get more and more tools, technologies, et cetera, that allow people to, to you know, shop in person and have the thing delivered later, to shop online, um, you know, to connect to objects in order to share them, right? You know, like to share a, a power drill instead of buying one and so on. It becomes a lot easier to imagine a world in which, and this only would work in an urban setting, a world in which we stay put and the stuff we want comes to us, mm. you know? Um, and that's just one of many kinds of innovations that is made possible by the, by the, you know, collision of cities and new technologies, new innovations, you know, global trade and ideas. Sort of brings to life uh, Jane Jacobs, the death and life of great American cities. What do you think uh, is is that sort of like the the living form of what you think the city should be in the future? Well, I think uh, I think Jane Jacobs was 
a brilliant woman um, who made an invaluable contribution. Um, certainly a very formative book for me at one point in my life. Um, I think, though, that we have a slight difficulty right now, which is that the amount of change we need makes it very difficult to imagine organic community-led change ever getting us there. Mm. Um, you know, we need to really massively rework our cities, our industries, uh, the, the whole suite of technologies we use, how we provide energy, uh, how we grow our food, et cetera. And it's going to be really hard to get there in just a few years by asking people to do small things themselves or asking people to make individual choices about, you know, uh, building this house here or building one condo project there or whatever. So the fast forward button is, is some sort of advocacy uh, on a governmental level. Well, I think that we, we absolutely must have, you know, a public sector role in this, right? I mean, it, it is government's job to help the public plan what they need and deliver it, right? Um, I think, though, that we also need a really broad kind of, you know, cross-sector approach, right? We need everybody involved, right? We need, you know, the, the coffee shop owner, the artist, the, you know, the the software developer, the, you know, the builder, um, you know, the chemist, everybody. Um, since these systems are so big, they touch on so many things that we're going to need people who understand a huge variety of things working on their transitions in order to really make mm -hmm. them work. There's definitely a job for everybody. I think uh, what makes humans humans is our capability to hope for a better future. And I, I think that is sort of what you're talking about is that, that yeah, we can sort of uh, actualize something that would help us. So, so, so what is an ideal world for you in, what do you hope for? What's an ideal world for you in 25 years, 50 years? Well, um, I try, to be honest, I try to be optimistic rather than hopeful. Um, I find optimism is a more powerful place to be. Mm. Um, uh, I think Hope, in some ways, is easily defeated. Uh, I think it's it's easy to lose hope, for example, right? Um, and I feel like the the really powerful thing that's holding a lot of us back is not that we feel the, that things are hopeless, right? Although there are some of us who do, but rather that we've become incredibly cynical about the idea that anything is going to be done, right? I think a great many people understand that there are things we could be doing better mm -hmm. right now, many of them. Um, but I think that we, uh, you know, we have been conditioned by our experiences and the public debate and, and the way that that's been formed and the way politics works to just assume that nothing really is going to change. And I think that form of cynicism is actually obedience to the powerful. That, that thinking nothing will change is exactly what people who don't want anything to change want you to think, you know? And that in that light, optimism becomes, especially chosen optimism, just, you know, hey, I'm going to choose to be optimistic about this because I want to see a positive outcome. And I know that being optimistic about the outcome actually increases the likelihood of it arriving. I think doing that is actually a very powerful political act right now. And so if there's anything that I could see changed, uh, it would be basically 
changing in our in our minds. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of uh, one of the world's greatest philosophers, the funk musician George Clinton, once said, "Free your mind, and your ass will follow." Uh, and I think that that is really, really sound advice. It come, It occurs to me that you're an extremely optimistic person. Is it, I guess my final question, is it hard to remain optimistic in a world where, as you said, climate, climate reports are coming out every year saying oh, we're, we're facing increasingly dire circumstances? Is yeah. that hard for you? It may well be true that humanity is facing its greatest crisis in tens of thousands of years. Um, and I think it is almost certainly true that, that our form of civilization is facing the greatest crisis it's ever had. Um, and so it's possible to be worried about our species as a whole. In fact, about the, the biosphere of the planet as a whole. Um, and it's probably wise to be worried about the fate of our society. Um, I think, though, that you know, it's a difficult balance to stay informed, to really find out how things are going, because most of the time the answer to how things are going is not very well, right? Um, and to also stay in a place where you are focused not on the magnitude of the problem, but the opportunities for the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very easy to fall into despair, depression, um, apathy, whatever, when you focus only on how bad things are getting. Um, I think that it's therefore really important that we take time to connect to the things that excite us, you know, that we take time to um, not only be mentally healthy and good people in the sense of get enough exercise and sleep well and have good friends and so forth, but, um, but actually mentally healthy in regards to these issues. Right, which means to recognize that one of the real difficulties is giving in to the feeling that nothing can be done. And so mm-hmm. having a regular practice of understanding how much can be done and how much it's possible to change where we are right now to do better things. I think, I think yeah, I really I like that message because it, it sort of, it frees you up to think outside of the box, kind of to think think about solutions that maybe hadn't ever been thought of before, and yeah. and that's what you do. I mean, I think the open secret um, to this work is not how bad the future could get. It's how good the future can still be. Um, you know, we may well, if we address these problems with enough passion and intelligence, end up with a world that works far better for almost everybody than the world we have now. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there's still more than a little opportunity to have a very bright future. Won't be a future without problems. We've already, you know, set in motion some really awful things. But we've also set in motion some incredibly positive things. And, uh, you know, which of those two forces wins is, I think, largely up to how many of us, you know, join in. Alex Stefan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That was my conversation with planetary futurist Alex Steffen. His most recent work, Carbon Zero, Imagining Cities That Can Save the Planet, is available now. This is the CJSR edition, and we'll be right back after this short break. 
For most people, combining the words ethical and fashion might be considered a bit of an oxymoron. Stereotypically, many of the clothes that we wear every day were produced in factories riddled with poor working conditions and where employees are paid next to negligible wages. But when Canadian fashion designer Sanjit Senek heard on the news that 112 overworked, underpaid factory workers were killed in Bangladesh when their poorly constructed factory caught fire, Senek reached a breaking point. Surely, there's a path towards creating a more ethically-minded fashion industry. CJSR's Roshni Nair sat down with Senek last week to find out more. So I, I'm a fashion designer who has worked uh, for more than 20 years um, in North America, Europe. Um, I've worked in Asia as well. Um, and uh, I was, my last job was at Walmart Canada. Um, and I watched the Tazreen uh, factory fire, which killed 117 mostly women in Bangladesh, um, uh, occur. And uh, the Rana Plaza, which went down and uh, killed 1,129 people. And I watched that um, happen, and I decided I wanted to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So I've been on a journey, a personal journey, and I've opened it up to other people as I started to find answers and be um, a part of um, investigating. And um, I have a blog, which I'm using for people who are interested and um, looking for answers as well to have a dialogue. Because when I did uh, participate in a um, uh, documentary for the Fifth Estate, I had a lot of uh, people emailing me and commenting and wanting to, you know, join in. And I didn't really know what they were going to join in on. I hadn't anything formulated as as such. So I've used that as a sounding board. So that's me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what is your exact connection to that uh, factory collapse in Bangladesh? Were you Did you design like the clothing that they were making there or well in are you talking about well in, in for Rana Plaza yeah, we're talking Rana about Plaza. Rana Plaza we're we're talking about uh Walmart mm-hmm. uh came out and uh a few weeks after saying that there was uh ladies jeans that were found in the rubble that were made from uh a vendor that we had called Fame Jeans, and I was a ladies' wear designer. It could have been me or my colleague or both of us, but I don't have the style number, and and uh, I couldn't I couldn't tell you if that was me or her or both of us, but I know that I'm connected. So I guess when you're... Is it something that you immediately thought of, or yes, it's it was a huge impact that that uh, that there was something that could have been mine, um, but I believe that the biggest the the biggest thing that impacted me is it could have been any of us, 
And because there was, because it was illegally subcontracted and we kept hearing that word and that when I was sitting in my office, I was thinking to myself, well, how will I know where anything is made? And I can't be sure whether the what I'm drawing is being made in unbearable conditions. So that is why I left. It really has to do with not knowing. It really has to do with I can't be a part of something that I cannot, that is not being policed in the correct way. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I think that's what's very fascinating because it is that personal journey. Like mm-hmm. you saw that and you made that connection. And I wonder, I don't know if, uh, you know, as consumers, we really make that connection. Like that's where our clothing is produced, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, yes, of course. That for me, it was it was a personal, it was a personal um, um, decision to 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 change what I was doing and to um, search for answers. And you know, as I started to um, you know make that journey. I I talked to um, a um, a labor rights um, uh, what base, basically a unionist who is um, who was a, a former child laborer. Her name is Kalpona Actor, and I was feeling so guilty about being a part of it because it is not it is so far from what. I believe to be my personal, you know, my my integrity, and and I believe the same thing for um, for consumers. But what she said to me, what she's saying to all of us, is to let go of the guilt, and because that's not going to help, and and to actually try to look for solutions, right, and to do something. And I did something. I took that first step. Um, for consumers, I'm here. Because I've been part of this industry in so many different aspects of design and product development globally, is that I'm taking that knowledge and trying to translate it and and give consumers some options that might be a little bit more concrete than just say, you know what, you should think about what you're, where you're get, you should, you sh- do you know where your your stuff is made? You should, you, sh- you should watch out for that but that doesn't really do anything you have to have you have to have some concrete you know um options and i've come with some that that have uh that have been formulated through my you know my personal journey and what are those solutions <laughs> <laughs> so in an interview with one of your um one of your journalists in uh, in 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 edmonton the other day um I, I I told her this. I said I don't have you know the magic potion, right? I don't have the magic potion that will make you be able to shop ethically, completely ethically on the exact same budget that you have, you know. So that's not going to happen today. But I can give you some options, um, and um, I guess uh, I will be I'll, I'll be doing that in uh, in my presentation, but. I guess the biggest um, the biggest option 
I think that's the most concrete and the one that people have been asking me the most is that, you know, I'm on a budget, I buy, you know, lower price clothes from mass fashion, you know, retailers. And um, so which one's better? And a few months ago, I couldn't have, I, I couldn't have answered this question, but um, a historic agreement or system was, was signed. It was called the, uh, it's called the Accord for Fire and Building Safety. And within this, um, retailers, and this really stems for Bangladesh uh, only, but it's an option. But this, the retailers that have signed this, uh, this document are legally binding themselves to make reparations to any factory workers who could be harmed in in their in the uh, in the production of their clothing. This has never happened before. This is this is this is new. This is uncharted territory, and it's important to know that there are retailers out there that have that have said that they're going to you know stand behind. Uh, factory workers in Bangladesh and and pay um, reparations if there if something does go go wrong um, so one of those retailers to <laughs> to preempt your question is uh, Joe fresh and they were one of the most demonized uh, because you saw all their clothing that were that was in the Rana Plaza of course they were guilty. But they decided to sign this, and I am not making any, I'm not going to try to figure out why or in what context, but they signed it, and, uh, and it's very important. And the biggest, the biggest one of the other um, uh, reasons why this accord is very important is that um, 1,129 people and counting would still be alive today if they had the ability to say no to going into a factory that was that they thought was faulty because before th- this document was signed the workers that went to work at Rana Plaza they knew that there was a crack in the in the factory and they knew and they asked their bosses uh not to uh that they didn't want to go to work that day but um, they didn't have any recourse. Um, it's either work or or no pay. And when you're working under 11% of what is a, a living wage, you don't have that option. So now they do. And so, so you've got one retailer who's Canadian who's decided to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Now, is that just for Bangladesh or for? That is, yeah, that's that that is just for Bangladesh, and and um, I must say that you know I've I've been talking to um, uh, a very important for us in Canada, an NGO called um, Makilla Solidarity, and they've been you know sort of instrumental in helping me understand what what this all means. For Bob Jeffcott, who is uh, one of the the members of Makilla Foundation, he's he looks at it as a uh, as a an opportunity now that something this historic has been signed that it could lead to better 
better conditions in in other countries as well, because as you know, there there have been fires in other countries as well, right? Mm-hmm. So so that's that's a practical. Your lowest of the low, where you're going to be shopping that way. But in other options, there are there. I want to show uh, in my presentation that fair trade isn't just you know beads on a on a string and and a couple of uh, you know hemp bags. It is a viable solution um, to to shop, and that um, because uh, shopping has become so so easy. Uh, on a uh, on a smartphone, that uh, you're able to access more and more of these retailers because they are not at at your mall, but you have an international group of retailers that you can start to to use. And there's one who's actually very close to us. Well, close to me because I live in Toronto. Uh, the company is called Oliberté, and they make um, um, fair trade shoes in uh, in Africa. And their price points are basically Roots or an Aldo. Uh, so it's, you know, it, it competes with what's going on in the mall. And now you're under a different, you're working under a different sort of uh, set of criteria for, for, for workers, right? You're, when you're in under fair trade, they're being paid a living wage. They're, they don't have to go to uh, major cities and and because they can stay in their their rural environment and have a better quality of life. I guess I should uh I guess I should preface the fact that there's so much that we could talk about. We could talk about sustainability and of course fair trade falls into fairs falls into that. And the reason why I started going down fair trade is because sustainability uh experts came up to me after um the after I, I I decided to to participate in in the documentary uh, in the Fifth Estate, and told me you know you got it all wrong, you're not don't don't fix that system. Uh, start looking at other systems that have uh, that have um, the workers' rights and safety inherently in the system. You know, we roll our eyes when you say fair trade because they're, you know, if you think about Christmas time and you gift because there's stuff that's, you know, there's handicrafts and things like that. But there are there are viable retailers out there that you can access on your smartphone and you can challenge a Abercrombie & Fitch or a uh, American Eagle Outfitters with a company called the People Tree, which is a, a UK-based company. It's giving you the same the same style from from a fashion designer's point of view um, at the same prices, right? All you have to do is click, right? You don't even have to go to your mall. So so there are options out there that are a little bit that are inherent to the change in technology as well. So we have to relook at things that we might think we couldn't use before. And there's a new sort of system as well. I don't know if I'm going on because I could talk for hours about this. I have a little question. Okay. But, um, <laughs> if you want to talk about the new system, that's go, cool too. Go, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's I your guess game. For me, I was just thinking like what you said, like what's happening at the mall. And I, I guess I'm looking at the fashion industry as a whole and kind of this desire to change every season and yes like yeah like do we need to consume as much 
trends or kind of disposable clothing, even if it is fair trade, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so I got to tell you that I'm in the headspace of I'm in the headspace right now of justice for workers, right? So if you're we we start talking about we start talking about slowing down the fashion process. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head too, right? That is an important thing. And sustainability experts would tell you to to slow it down, be more strategic. Um, if I was going to talk about that, because I could have, <clears throat> I would have um, I, I would have uh, started to tell people, well, I would have told people, take a look in your closet, pull out everything that you didn't wear last season, put it down and make a make a note of how much that was, right? And right there you have a budget, right, for for being more strategic and putting a little bit more into buying the correct the, the correct clothing, clothing that is made ethically as well. And even if it's just one jacket that you've taken you've taken you've taken that money out of fast fashion and you've put it into something that is ethical. That's it. You've done your part. Retailers, you know, that it's a, it's important to know, and and that's why I'm 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 speaking to today is that it's important to know that you're the carrot. Retailers run after you, so if you start to do that, they will start to make things in correct ways, or at least take a portion of it. They will start to change. They change they change their way of retailing all the time to suit fashion or to suit a trend. Well, if we just call this a trend they will have to follow and they follow you so slowing down the fashion process is 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 important and that's in the bigger picture but it it is important yes mhm yeah cuz i think it's like that insatiable desire that kind of drives garment industries to push their workers to produce clothing at such low prices yeah we're in a uh we're in a cycle and we're addicted um we've been we've been led down the path of if we can have you know five shirts instead of three and you know a whole you know 10 packs of socks for the same as what 5 years ago we would have spent for two you know our closets are full yeah and and um i i you know i'm getting older and i don't want to be like my dad so i don't want to start finger pointing at people and saying you know you should buy less you shouldn't do this you shouldn't do that but if we really if we really are you know we we're caring and 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 we want to do something uh, about the situation uh, for people in the third world who are making our clothes, you have to start to look at the fact that, you know, perhaps if it costs a little bit more and we have three shirts instead of five, it'll make a difference. And I do want to explain that it is going to happen anyway because workers are striking and there's there's a lot of discontent in the third world right now, I mean, five Cambodian um, uh, garment workers were shot a few a few weeks ago, just asking for 
a minimum wage, a, li a living wage. And it, this is very real, right? So, you know, if our clothes do start to cost a little bit more, um, we, we can kind, kind of control that by starting to shop differently, or it will just happen, but with, with a lot more strife on the other side uh, for, for workers in, in the third world. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with NPR's T-shirt documentary where they went to Colombia and Bangladesh. Uh, they follow like the route of a T-shirt from the cotton farm in the United yeah. States. Um, so they interviewed uh, people from the garment industry and they said that our industry is one that chases poverty. Uh, they move from countries like Colombia who are... Agree. Yeah, that are higher Agree. income and then to countries like Bangladesh because mm -hmm. it's easier to exploit workers. Yes. Um, but what Colombia did uh, with the movement of garment uh, companies was to kind of make clothes wholesale and kind of incorporate the design aspects of clothing. Do you think that's a viable option for, uh, I guess, different companies in the third world to kind of become more wholesale and... I guess create a new relationship like that. What do you think? <laughs> you got you got good uh, you got good uh, you got good solutions that are in form of questions. So <laughs> so actually, um, I think what you're trying to say is how come there isn't a great Chinese brand that's yeah. in the mall today, or how come there isn't a a Bangladeshi you know gap out there? And uh, I can't answer that question, you know, I can't. And uh, I've worked in this industry from the, from the factory side in Asia to the, to the retailer side in North America and Europe. And I just can't get my head around the fact that that hasn't happened yet. There's a lot of things that haven't happened yet. <laughs> so um, I think that, yes... If you put design in inherently into your in into your product, that's one thing. But to be able to do what you, I think you're you're thinking about is that you we have to have some sort of radical collaboration between North America and and uh, the third world, or or I mean, let's just say between Canada and either Bangladesh or Canada and India, to have that sort of happen. And 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 I believe that it it can happen, but uh, but you're right, um, it doesn't exist, and uh, I haven't I haven't tackled that question yet. Sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess on the heels of that question, oh gosh, and because <laughs> you've worked in Asia as well, yes. How does um, like a factory that manufactures clothing for Western consumers differ from a factory that manufactures clothing for consumers of that nation? Or... Oh, I couldn't tell you. Okay. I've always been, I've, like, you know, you know the type of person I am. <laughs> I was born in Ireland. I was raised in, in North America. I did my schooling in France and I worked as, as I worked as a, I guess, a Western, yeah. as Western entity. Yeah, I don't have that. I don't have that for you, but, yeah. but I think I know what you're trying to talk about. Yeah, is that do you think that the standard should be the same between? Is that or what you're is asking it, me? Is it the same standard or I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And and 
and and should it be the same standard or or no more um if we're going to put a standard in um i think we should look at it from who we are cuz mm-hmm. right here the two of us are sitting in canada right so we're looking at it as canadians shopping so that standard shouldn't lower um because the the standard um i believe that the standard of conditions for the people who make our clothes should be a standard that we would want for ourselves right if we were living in that country because even if you know this whole you know surge of local making things locally uh was even to sort of take root that would take maybe 10% out of the whole of the 90% that's made in the third world so essentially we have to start looking at the people that are making the clothes on our backs as part of as part of us right there's there, there there's no border there right anyway i think that's that's very nicely put and i mean yeah like i guess that local movement and places like american apparel is that i mean do we want to cut off like uh third world manufacturers completely and just start making all of our clothes. Well, it will never happen. Yeah. It's not even a, a possibility. It's not a possibility. But um, but there has to be some standards that are in the third world that are put there because the following the lowest price is a dangerous, as you can see at, at, at Rana Plaza, it's a dangerous thing to do. As I talked to you about Oliberté being, being a fashion uh, sort of um, a fair trade, fair trade shoes that are coming out of Africa. We know that you know Chinese companies are investing heavily in Ethiopia and making shoes at some of the lowest labor costs in the world. So, if there is no general uh, consensus for a living wage for workers in the third world, uh, what I'm trying to say is that a Bangladesh can happen again, mm-hmm. a Rana Plaza can happen again. That was CJSR's associate producer, Roshni Nair, in conversation with Canadian fashion designer Sanjit Senek about the need to sew together a more ethical fashion industry. This is the CJSR edition. Stay with us. Winter can wear on the nerves of just about anybody. The frigid temperatures, the shoveling, the long, dark nights. It's a cold, cold world out there. But there's one person in Edmonton that sees the beauty in all that dirt. Here is University of Alberta's Earth and Atmospheric Scientist, Gerhard Reuter, on the life of a snowflake. I think it's beautiful. It's, it's in some ways, so simple. It's just water molecules, 
oxygen and hydrogen. And I think also snowflakes is some beauty. It's a beauty. They're, they're, I don't like snow, but I like ice crystals and snowflakes. <laughs> yeah, they are inherently just a very, very beautiful thing. Yes, I think so. It starts off that you have little ice crystals if the temperature gets very cold, and then water vapor deposits on these ice crystals. Once the snow grows by the positioning of water vapor more, it starts to fall in the atmosphere, about one meter per second fall, and it aggregates or collects other ice crystals. As soon as they come in contact with each other, they stick together. They together call what we call a snowflake. Now the interesting thing of snow is that snowflake is completely unique. The needles, they are very long and thin and have plates. They are more like uh, maybe a dime or a loony, so this is very fat. And then a columns, which is a combination of the two. It's, 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 it has some length, but also some width. And then the dendrites, which is a hexagonal, six-sided stars. While the ice crystal falls through the air, it tumbles. It encounters different temperatures and therefore changes its shapes because the water vapor is deposited in different forms on it. So something may start off as a plate and then it becomes an environment of temperature which make it glow, grow like a needle. Then it becomes a column. And then the temperature can change again and then this becomes a dendrite. The probability of having identical snowflakes is really point zero 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 zero, and we probably would have to continue. I think it's 10 minus 67. And it's not just inconceivable to be at a particular snowstorm, but even in past, the snowflakes when the dinosaurs lived have never been the same as the ones now. It's somewhere in a little bit you can think is you don't find two identical people. DNN strands are completely different. But the snowflakes is much, much more different. And I think you can, sometimes in the winter we get thrown down because we have to live with the effects of snow like slippery roads and shoveling sidewalks or something like this. So I think it might, it's nice actually to see also the beauty in some of it. My name is Gerd Reuter. I'm a professor at the, at the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. And my, my research interest is in precipitation. That's it for this week's episode of the CJSR edition. This week's program was produced by myself, Matt Hergy, with assistance from Roshni Nair. Special thanks today to Alex Steffen, Sunjit Senek, and Gerhard Reuter. The CJSR edition is a spoken word project of CJSR FM 88 community-powered public radio broadcasting from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. If you have any questions about this series, you can visit cjsrnews.com. And if you'd like to hear this or any of our past episodes again, you can access our archive via iTunes. When you're there, leave us a review. For CJSR FM 88.5 and everybody who tirelessly works on this show, to bring you radio that challenges the status quo. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the CJSR edition.